Well, you know, I, I, I literally remember the day I woke up in Brazil and uh, the thought went through my head. There are 1,249 more seats in the world today because of me. So what? <laughs> and, and so that was kind of the moment of, you know, what do I want to do that's meaningful to me, that, that makes a difference? And that's kind of where it started that eventually led, honestly, to teaching. That was the part that I really uh, enjoyed the most. But along the way, you know, you read and learn and research and write and all of that becomes part of what you know and what you teach. And so, but where I ultimately, where I found the most satisfaction was in the classroom. So many great discussions happening here in the Cultural Hall. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Uh, don't forget that you can find all of the episodes. You can go to theculturalhall.com. Anything that we mention within this episode, we take the show notes for you. And there's also timestamps that you can see in the actual post at theculturalhall.com or wherever you're getting this show available in podcast form. Uh, shout out to all the lifers as we continue now this being episode 516 of the the cultural hall and uh, for those of you that maybe this is your first or one of your first you've got a lot of listening for you to do if you want the easiest way for you to be able to listen to old episodes of the cultural hall you can become a patreon saint uh, that's uh, you by going to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall that way you can get all of those back episodes in uh, an easy to navigate feed and i should also to mention uh, that there are those two spots available left in the celestial level patreon satronage is that a thing uh yeah it is you can do it uh you can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall if you want to find out more about that find us at the cultural hall in all social medias and now this episode of the cultural hall it's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited to be able to visit with Keith Erickson. Now, if you do not know who Keith Erickson is, well, let me read his bio from the internet, which would tell you he is an award-winning author, a teacher, a public historian who serves as director of the Church History Library. He is highly motivated and a dynamic leader with more than a decade of international administrative experience in the fields of public history, publishing, higher education, and manufacturing. Welcome, Keith, to the Cultural Hall. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, uh, if people are Patreon saints of the Cultural Hall, and that means they're watching the video that we recorded... Uh, you'll note that uh, Keith is actually doing this interview from the Granite Vault here in Salt Lake. He's not allowed to have his video camera on, so all you see is his name. But it's very exciting to know that this is the closest I've got to the Granite Vault, Keith. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that portion with us. Well, thanks. That's a great way to describe a Zoom malfunction. I appreciate it. Yeah. The the connection, that the acoustics in that vault there are pretty great. Now, Keith, uh, we are going to talk about a book that you have. It comes out on Monday, and I'm excited to be able to share that with uh, everybody. But I want to know a little bit about you. What, what drives a person to be, as your internet bio would tell me, an award-winning author, teacher, and public historian who serves as the director of the Church History Library? You know, that's a great question. Uh, drive is probably the the wrong verb. In a lot of ways, I feel like I've stumbled all over the place uh, and found things. So, you know, life started in the auto industry and auto manufacturing. I later went back, did more schooling, uh, spent some time in higher ed as a history professor, 
And it was just about seven years ago that the invitation came to work for the church and all the pieces kind of fit together. And so uh, here I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've just summarized your life in 45 seconds. I appreciate it, but I'm going to make you speak a little bit more about it. So in the auto industry, are we talking like sales? You're, you're one of the executives that's like, make it that way. Uh, buy, buy, sell, work them harder, labor unions. Like what, what were we doing in that, in that? So it was manufacturing. I literally started on the assembly line. I grew up in Baltimore and um, making seats at a plant for some uh, there in Baltimore. Then after missionary service, where did you I serve? Where did you serve? I served in southern Brazil. Okay. And so I came home with Portuguese skills right at the time when the company was expanding into Latin America. So I became part of the uh, that international team that launched uh, seven plants in South America wow. in the in the mid 90s. So then it was kind of a regional whatever role, regional kind of strike force launching plants and making things work. But what what I can what I can tell from listening to that is you know what does not sound like a uh, college history professor is what you're talking about in in Brazil. So how did you go from from one to the other? Well, you know, I I I literally remember the day I woke up in Brazil and uh, the thought went through my head, there are 1,249 more seats in the world today because of me. So what? Mm-hmm. And, and so that was kind of the moment of, you know, what do I want to do that's meaningful to me, that, that makes a difference? And that's kind of where it started that eventually led, honestly, to teaching. That was the part that I really uh, enjoyed the most. But along the way, you know, you read and learn and research and write and all of that becomes part of what you know and what you teach and so but where I ultimately where I found the most satisfaction was in the classroom what what is it about teaching is it the shaping of minds is it the discovering new things for yourself yeah I think it's a little bit of all of that but um you know there and it's especially that moment where things click you know uh and it happens at different times for some people, it's the first week of class. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's after like, you know, uh, years. I, I spent several years at the University of Texas at El Paso. And one of the challenges, which to me was exciting, was that it was primarily, it has its roots as a mining school, UTEP miners, mm-hmm. and that's, that's where it started. And so it still has a very, very strong engineering program. So my history classes were full of engineers who had to take history class. And so there was kind of that tension there of like, I was in the way of the thing they wanted to do, which was build stuff and make the world better. And so I had to kind of sell it to them of why did it matter? Hmm. And, and maybe one moment that I think encapsulates many, many moments was one when one young engineer raised her hand and she said, wait a minute, what's the history of concrete? And that's where I knew she was thinking about it and she realized that what she was doing had a history and it came from somewhere. It didn't just appear in, you know, her day to day. And she started to kind of see that there was a bigger world around her. And, and that was fun. Now, and then I had to confess, I don't know the history of concrete. I've never <laughs> studied that before. So like- we went and figured it out. Yeah, you said, pause, I'm going to go ahead and figure that out. Now, at this time, were you a single gentleman traversing the world? Or what was the conversation like where it's like, babe, so car seats is not my jam. I'm going to go teach history to minors. Yeah, so I was a single gentleman in Brazil. 
yeah, so marriage and, and, and life came later after I was uh, in school. Yeah. So so what was that like? Because I'm not what I'm not hearing is, you know, the story often told, which was we were in our sophomore year at Brigham Young University. And we how, how did you meet your wife? So it, it was at uh, Brigham Young University. Oh. <laughs> But it was it was after the uh, the automobile experience. So. Okay. But we met, uh, yeah, at church. You know, singles ward. So. And then so uh, go to church. That was my takeaway. So then, fast flash forward, because uh, I want to make sure that we really get the, the the meat of your book is is pretty fascinating. So I want to make sure that we get plenty of time for that. But I have to wonder. Uh, you talk about getting the the opportunity with the uh, with the church history library. Uh, what what that looks like? Give me give me that whole scenario. Sure. Well, uh, it looks for a long time it was kind of random and vague questions. Uh, somehow people uh, knew about me out there, and uh, you know, and, and I was presenting at conferences and active in history circles. I didn't really do, uh, you know, Mormon history or church history. I, uh, early on, I was writing about Abraham Lincoln and and other kinds of things, uh, but I was out and, and around and known. Uh, and so it came in the form of just kind of questions. Hey, would you ever be interested in working for the church? <laughs> And I would always respond with, well, is this a job offer? And they'd say, no, 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 this is just, uh, you know, hypothetical. What, would you ever be interested? And, I, and my, my kind of snappy answer was, well, you know, I have kids. They eat food. I need money. And so I, 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 don't, I can't really respond to hypotheticals. Right. <laughs> and so, so after several years of that, and it might be, you know, once a year, every other year, I'd bump into someone at a history conference or that, you know, they'd call or whatever. But after several years of that, they call, the, the call said, okay, we have a job. Would you like to consider it? And then I guess I was sort of trapped. I said, well, I have told you that if you ever had a job, I would consider it. So tell me the details. And I guess the long story short is uh, don't pray about stuff because <laughs> that's how they get you. Yeah. 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 It, it's a funny thing. So I also work for the church for my uh, full-time employment. And and it it is, it's a, I don't want to say shady gray area because I feel like that sort of demonizes it and that's not it. But like when we feel like in life that God directs us and gives us purpose and then something that aligns our financial, you know, our home goals with our sort of spiritual things, it almost becomes a you can't say no. Now, certainly you can, and I wouldn't encourage anyone to, as you point out, to not pray about it, but it, it's exciting to be in that experience where you're like, oh, these things are converging, and it doesn't have to be I work because I work and I'm faithful because I'm faithful. It's because I work because I'm faithful and I work. Yeah, and there are days still. I mean, I've been there almost seven years where I I I pinch myself and I'm like, am I? Is this real? Do, do I actually get dental insurance because I'm doing this <laughs> this thing? Uh, but yeah, it's pretty cool. So then, answer me this: What does the director of the Church History Library do? Like, are you you mainly oversee processes and and they say, ask Keith about that. And you're sort of the face of things. Are you innovating? What do you What do you do with the Church History Library? Yeah, it's a little bit of all of that. You know, uh, uh, there's a staff of about 60 employees, and then maybe 110 missionaries. Wow! And they are involved in uh, all of the things related to uh, keeping the church's records. And so, 
these are the records of the church itself. And so uh, it's uh, property deeds when the church buys properties. It's the minutes of the first presidency. It's patriarchal blessings when a patriarch sends them in. It's the local unit histories that people send in. Uh, it's the database, which has all of the mission calls. You know, today there's missionary work is not paper anymore. It's mm -hmm. all data and emails. And so, so we're, we, we're, we've got paper records to digital information. And so it's all the work involved in kind of gathering that together, cataloging it, describing it, organizing it so we can find it uh, when we need it, and then putting it into different kinds of systems like an online catalog uh, where whereby we can find things or use things and uh, share things. Uh, in the online catalog today, you can go to churchhistorylibrary.org. We've got more than 20 million digital assets online that wow. people can, can see and, and use uh, now from their home. Uh, in normal times, it's slowed a little bit during the pandemic, but in normal times, we scan about two and a half million images per year that, yes. we, that we feed into that. Uh, and so across that whole scope of work from finding and gathering records to ultimately making them accessible and shared, uh, I kind of uh, oversee that. You know, there are many, many talented managers and people doing all kinds of work along the way. But yeah, helping with innovating, helping with problem solving, helping with making connections to other things. Uh, one connection we're pretty excited about when the church published uh, and its colleagues in the church history department, the new history saints, multi-volume history. Mm -hmm. One of the ideas that came up early on was, you know, that they were going to release an electronic version. So we said, well, wouldn't it be cool if in the electronic version in the footnotes, you could click and actually see the, the original source. And so we, we've, we worked on that and, and that's what happens now. If you're reading it online or in the gospel library app, but there was a whole bunch behind the scenes. Uh, you know, some of the things they cited weren't scanned, so we had to digitize them. Some of it was, you know, getting it in the right format. Then it was, you know, oh, wow. Uh, most people who do research are on a laptop or something, but people reading Saints are on their phone. Mm -hmm. So how do we make this actually work on, on a phone experience rather than, you know, needing a whole laptop with a big screen with lots of, you know, kind of features around the screen to zoom in and all that. People just want to see it. Uh, so, so that's one example of just kind of making connections and, and doing what we can to, to share the records. With having uh, 110 missionaries that sort of work for the Church History Library, are you a de facto mission president then? So officially, no. Okay. They have their, uh, their own mission president. Uh, and, and in a way, missionaries who serve at headquarters uh, are staff. You know, they do, you know, they're not proselytizing. They, they are doing work that's directed by my employees. And so in a way, their mission president is kind of like human resources. Hmm. The mission president is involved in their call and you know, if they're sick or if they, they need to, to take a break to go visit a child who has need, no, that all goes through their mission president. And, and our side is mostly, you know, the mission will say, well, we'll say, you know, we need people who can do X, Y, Z skill wise, and we need 10 of them. And the mission president will say, here are the 10. And then that's, and then we just kind of go from there uh, and, and put the 10 uh, to work in whatever the task was that that we've decided so but missionaries do a lot of cool things you know they uh we get uh you know we get about fifteen thousand requests a month 
for uh, copies of a patriarchal blessing. So cool. we have a team of missionaries that hunt that uh, down. We have missionaries on site who do uh, the hosting when people walk in. Uh, and we've got some really cool things on display. We've got, you know, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, uh, Joseph Smith's uh, documents. And so missionaries will do that interpretation for guests and, and show them show them through the, the exhibit. So and all kinds of things behind the scenes. Pretty amazing. And, and to see where things have been, where you talk about, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't likely have any of these digital documents. And to now know that we have 20 million plus and 2.5 million added to it a year. And and it's just tremendous, the work that you and those that work with you are, are doing. Uh, as I introduced you, I, I mentioned that you are an author of many books. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about your latest, which is Real versus Rumor. But are there other books that of note that people would say, oh, Keith, sure, that wrote this book? Uh, you know, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Uh, <laughs> my, my mom is a fan of all of them. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know... Uh, you know, one of them is about Abraham Lincoln, but it's more about the memory of Abraham Lincoln. So it's about 20th century, people in the 20th century, uh, looking back, remembering him. Uh, I did another one. When I lived in Texas, they had a huge, this was 2008, 2009, they had a huge battle over their social studies curriculum. And this made international news, you know, late night talk show hosts were making fun of Texas. But people were really, really excited about history and, and what to teach kids or, or what to make kids learn or not. So I wrote a book about that controversy, uh, but in many ways, they're kind of specialized things. Um, so, but, but award-winning the internet would tell me. And so I want to make sure that we well, give you proper kudos. That happens too. Yep. Yeah. So thanks. You bet. Let's take a break. Let's come back. Uh, and then I want to dive into what this real versus rumor book is all about and maybe a way that we can uh, determine for ourselves what in fact is real and rumor. We'll talk about the book and we'll talk about some theoretical, philosophical things as well. That's coming back in the second block of The Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer's ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com and we'll get you taken care of. I've got about 60 seconds to talk to you about Best DJ in Utah. Now, here's the deal. I have almost attained this for real, meaning I almost have the most reviews in the state of Utah as far as DJ services go. How about that? That's Best DJ in Utah, and I didn't just buy the web domain. That's actually some proof in the pudding. Here's the deal. Doing lots of events. I'm able to do it from a socially uh, distant, a physically distant distance 
That's a lot of distance, I just said. Uh, but if you want to find out more about how I may be able to make your party, whether that be holiday or family reunion, or you've got a wedding coming up, make that the best event it possibly can be, I would hope that you would please join me over at bestdjinutah.com. You can find out about pricing, ask for a quote, and be able to correspond with me there. The website, again, is Best DJ in Utah. And don't let the name fool you. I'm going to Texas next month bestdjinutah.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you, if you are not a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, to do so. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall, and that gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group with all the super fans of the Cultural Hall, where we hang out and have side tangential conversations that get so nerdy and so down the rabbit hole that we just love it. Uh, so you can find that. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It's just five or ten bucks a month, depending what level you want to be at, or you can do the year subscri- subscription as well. Love to have you. Uh, in that group. Now, Keith, you have written this book. It's called Real versus Rumor. And the uh, kind of the, the subheading, the subline is how to dispel latter day myths. So I want to know is this like, um, are we talking about like Elvis Presley almost joined the church or that kind of stuff? Or are we talking like hard, fast gospel, gospel doctrinal rumors or myths? Or is it both? I, yes, I think is the answer. Elvis <laughs> does make an appearance. Uh, so do stories from scripture uh, and and from church history and popular culture. And uh, I tried to have fun and draw from everywhere. So give me an idea then. Give me an idea of one of these myths that you either prove to be true or you bust it. Wow. Uh, where should we start? Um, I, I think maybe I'll start with the word myth. Maybe, maybe that's a good way to start. Yeah. I, I think there are there are layers to this word, and I engage it on, on uh, three layers. One, we often do myth as a kind of uh, fact versus myth, fact versus fiction. And so myth, uh, myth is kind of a factual thing, a specific uh, error. And so, um, you know, maybe with the, uh, the pioneers, uh, you, they're, they're, one factual error might be, you know, that people assume that pioneers all used hand carts. And when, when in fact, it's only about 5% of all of the pioneers uh, came by hand cart. But yet that has emerged as kind of our concept of pulling hand carts alone through the snow and dying. But if they all died, you know, like where would all of the Latter-day Saints have come from? Right. Uh, so, so there's kind of a facty level of myth. And so sometimes... Uh, it works that way. Um, off, you know, so another example might be, you know, is this a photograph of Joseph Smith or not? And that's something you can kind of test and analyze. And, and most of, uh, so far, 100% of the time, the answer is no, that's not a photograph of Joseph Smith. We don't have a photograph of Joseph Smith. I think the next layer of myth is kind of like as an epic 
story. And, th and this isn't, these are less things that are kind of factual or not, but they become kind of big stories that give meaning. So we can go back to the pioneers. So maybe there's, you know, maybe pioneers all didn't go by handcart, but there is a big kind of epic or mythical story of pioneers. And we spent a lot of time in the church trying to plug people into that story. Hmm. You know, we have millions of Latter-day Saints who've joined the church in their lifetime. Now they're, they're converts in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. They basically have nothing to do with uh, poor people walking across the plains in the 1850s. But yet we try and connect them uh, to that story. We tell the story. We have holidays. Uh, we have monuments. Uh, and we encourage people to, to find meaning there. Uh, sometimes the meanings that we pull out then get exaggerated or, or distorted or, or twisted because because it isn't anymore a, a thing about historical facts. It's about how does someone in the 21st century connect and make meaning. So an example of that might be the story of the, the gulls, uh, the seagulls and the crickets. Uh, and there are parts of that story that get, get forgotten, for example. Uh, you know, the seagulls were only one challenge now, now we should say because there may be some people that are listening to this that that aren't exactly cluing in. So I guess the myth or the story is that uh, when uh, the saints were here in the in the Salt Lake Valley, uh, crickets were essentially eating all of the all of the crops, and they were they weren't going to be able to have anything to lay up for the winter. And so uh, I think as the as the story goes that. Um, Everybody was encouraged to to uh, to pray and also to pay their tithing, and then, like angels from heaven, the the gulls descended and ate all of the the crickets, and and then their crops were saved. Am I getting it about right? You gave the mythical version of that one perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So, so what? So what, as we work to uh, dispel Latter Day myths, what are the other parts that don't get told that are important? So some of the parts that get forgotten are that there were more problems than just uh, seagulls. They were, there was a drought. It was a significant drought that year. There were frosts that were, that were late in, in the end of May, early June that were freezing their crops. And, and in many ways, those were bigger threats than uh, some crickets. Another thing that happened is the, the seagulls actually come through in a migratory pattern and then they left and they didn't eat all the crickets. The crickets are still there uh, and the crickets stay for several months. So over time, it gets consolidated into this kind of compact myth form that there was one problem, crickets, one answer, seagulls, and prayer made it happen. Uh, when in reality, there was a lot more going on. And frankly, it's just hard to build a monument to drought or frost. <laughs> it's easier to put a, a monument with crickets and, uh, and seagulls. Yeah, how do you how do you depict uh, frost in bronze, right? How do we how do we know what that is or or drought? I get, yeah, that's that that's an well, interesting thing. But immediately, my thought then goes to um, those people, and I'm sure you've sat in in the meetings where these have occurred, where people will stand and bear testimony and say, you know, because of this faith promoting story, which I know and feel. There were crickets. Goals fixed it because people p prayed and, and paid their tithing. That that if people are able to 
you know, expound their understanding of that story, it, it almost can shake the uh, the testimony of that individual story or or the the faith that they've sort of aligned with that telling of that story. You're right. It does. And I think one of the things to keep in mind and one of the kind of habits or tools that I, I recommend in this setting is a, a saying that we use in, in uh, courtrooms that we want to know the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so I think when we have stories like this that get exaggerated, it's important not to treat them as an either or. The cricket story is true or it's false. But if we look at it as something that there's truth, there's the whole truth, there's nothing but the truth, then I can still feel inspired by the parts of the story that are true. That's going to resonate with me. But then I can also use my intellect and say, you know, there's the, on the nothing but the truth, let me strip away some of these things that are overly exaggerated. Uh, I can do that so that I'm... I'm just focusing on uh, the parts that are true. And so I think it becomes a more uh, engaging experience in the terms of it gauges our mind, our heart, our faith, our intellect, but it also becomes a little more uh, complex, more nuanced. Uh, and we can't just have black and white stories, either or stories. We, we want to kind of get into it. And so I think, yeah, I mean, um, parts of the story can inspire me. They can be true. And Parts of them can can lead me back to the sources in the records and help and lead me to ask the kind of critical thinking questions about what what really happened and and how I know about it. Within our faith, the tradition, though, and I've heard this testimony born as well, where it's either Joseph Smith was a prophet or he wasn't. Either the Book of Mormon is true or it isn't. And so, while I agree with we can you know there can be these these um, bigger ideas there can be this truth and there can be you know sort of nuance and there can be maybe a little messy and and, and some of those things we will hear on the regular that it it's black or it's white it's true or it's not how do we taking a step further into this really be able to combat it because I think that idea is essential um, to to shore up that foundation so that we aren't rocked by things but I think that. I don't know that we've done our due diligence in being able to help fortify people to do that. No, I agree. And I think uh, two things. One, it's an unfortunate framing when people frame it that way as an either or. But two, I also don't think that this is just a Latter-day Saint problem. You know, we're swimming in a culture that wants to frame everything as either or mm -hmm. Democrat or Republican. Right. Uh, white police officers or black citizens. Everything that comes to us through the media, through politics, you know, and sometimes uh, it's intentional, like vote for my party or, or you're a defector, donate money or not. Uh, sometimes it's unintentional. You know, a, a, a news program will, will uh, you know, a cable news show will bring on two people to hear both sides. Well, what if there are three sides or mm -hmm. four sides mm -hmm. or five? Or what if it's a really obvious issue where there, there's really one really solid answer by science and the other things really aren't sides. They're just stupid, crazy people. But we <laughs> elevate them to sides. And, mm -hmm. and so so I think this is going on all around us. And we and we have to, to say, I don't want to act this way in church in matters of faith, but I also don't want to act this way in the matters of politics or in my community or the way I consume things on the Internet. 
but it's it's a clever way to market things. It's a clever way to get your point. It's one of the basics in public speaking when they teach you uh, how to, to, to debate or argue. And I think it's something we just have to work against if we want to have a real sense of what's reality, not just what's being talked about or presented to us. So then help us, because uh, as you're talking about dispelling myths, I know that this isn't uh, at least seemingly what the thrust of the book is about, but help us to dispel that myth that we have to be black or white, true or not, this or that. How, like what, what can we as individuals, and let's take this in the, the vein of our faith or, or our beliefs, how can we be able to sort of take ourselves out of what we probably have traditionally been taught and be able to say, oh, you know, maybe there is three, four sides. Maybe this can be true, but also this thing can be true as well. Yeah. You know, and, and this actually engages the the third and final layer of myth, which is uh, the structures that we have in our brain to think about things. And so we could go back to the, the pioneer example, maybe just for continuity. Mm -hmm. One of the myths that we hold in our head would go something like this. They were just like us. And so uh, I can, uh, we assume that when a pioneers, when pioneers think about family, they think about it the exact same way I think about it. When they think about sacrifice, it's exactly the same. When in reality, uh, it's not. And, and what's making me do that is, is just a, a kind of framework in my head that thinks uh, there's no change over time, that all humans are, are somehow the same. And there are lots of these uh, little frameworks. Uh, one of them is that we just assume things. Uh, we don't ask for evidence. Another one is we think we know everything. There's a common saying that history, hindsight is 2020. Uh, well, it's not. Uh, so the past is gone. Those people are dead. There's so many things that we don't know. So we have all of these, these kind of mythical uh, mental structures, and we need to replace them with habits. And, and it's hard work. They, they become skills. They're thinking skills in the same way that you need to develop skills to shoot a free throw or ride a bicycle. You have to kind of train yourself and repeat and make routines. So you, one of these routines to, to get exactly to your point is, is to notice when something's coming at me as an either or. Okay. If you never even perceive it, then you're always going to be, uh, you know, just thinking the world has two options. So the first kind of habit, the first kind of muscle memory that you develop is, wait a minute, you're framing it as an either or. Then you do, you do, you need to develop habits that you started to articulate. Well, what if it's more than just two? Or what if it's somewhere in the middle? What if well, these are two extreme positions? What if it's both of them? Mm -hmm. What if it's both of them and something else? Uh, and, and early on, just like riding a bicycle, you have to think about every one of those. You have to think about, I put my foot on the pedal. I can't lose my balance. I have to steer. And you're thinking, uh, where is an either or? No, there must be more. And then over time, these become habits, they become mental habits. And so you can instantly kind of say, no, that's, uh, there's more to that. Uh, and it, you just start to, it, it's like a, it just smells fishy. As soon as something comes with two options, you're like, no, well, where's the rest? Tell mm -hmm. me the rest. And you don't have to work through the, the process. But the book uh, identifies these kind of mental habits. 
that that we can develop to to respond to the world around us. I think at, at first glance of the title and discussion of the title, I think that people would say real versus rumor. Okay, this is going to be sort of like how I I brought us on board this, right? Does does the church have the sword of Laban or the Urim and Thummim? Is it, is it somewhere? And then it would be you saying, well, from all my historical research, it is proven that, yes, in fact, they have it. And we're not allowed to see it. And isn't that an interesting thing? What's next? Does, you know, do we, do we know the exact uh, size of the bullet that, uh, you know, that, the Joseph, the, the prophet Joseph was martyred by like almost some of those things. But what I like about this is that it, it is a much bigger, much deeper, much richer discussion of myth. You're, you're right. Thank you. And, and all of those things are in there. Uh, the sword of Laban is in chapter two. Joseph's martyrdom is uh, somewhere in the middle. And so along the way, uh, you know, I use all of these little stories to help develop these bigger skills. But yeah, at the end of the day, the goal isn't to say, oh, we went through 100 myths and, and I know that 57 of them are wrong. The stories are, are employed in the book to help the reader learn how uh, at the end of the day, actually, the epilogue is uh, called You Take the Next One, because that's the goal. Tomorrow, something is going to appear on YouTube or in your social media feed that's going to be weird and you got, you're going to have to solve it because it's going to take another two years for a book to come out and you can't wait for that because it's right in front of you. So that's where the book is going. How do we do, how do you as a reader develop the skills to take the next thing that pops up? So when you hear about people having faith crises, and I don't want to downplay anyone's situation, but I am curious, how often do you think that it is just a greater understanding or a limited understanding of sort of myth or lore within the church that has been changed, exposed, uh, uh, brought to the mind of the person that they just don't aren't able to deal with as opposed to uh, some actual questioning of their faith. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? It does. Um, and you're right. You know, I think a lot of people suffer with a lot of questions from church history. And and if if one person suffered, that would be terrible uh but but many do and and we've we've made covenants to mourn with those that mourn and and so their suffering is real uh when we use the the phrase faith crisis you know i i think about the 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 part of that the crisis side a crisis occurs when you, when you encounter a situation and you don't have the tools to deal with it that's a crisis right it mm -hmm. could be a natural disaster uh, in any setting, a crisis is something's in front of you and you don't have the tools to deal with it. So one of the hopes, kind of a secondary hope of the book, is that in presenting so many tools, so many mental tools for thinking about evidence, for thinking about history, for thinking about things, that whatever people encounter in the future, they do have a bigger tool set, a richer tool set, and then, then maybe it's not a crisis because uh, I, I do have tools uh, that I can deal with things and then be able to sort of process their way through it. I'm just, I'm just sitting back and I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking how valuable certainly just in life these tools are. And again, I don't want to, I, I want to make sure that I'm very clear that I'm not downplaying anyone that may have questions or are struggling or wrestling with things, but that in some of these cases, the reason 
um, that we may find ourselves not in the church or not being able to deal with it is because we just don't have the skills and it's just easier for us to say, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and let that go. I'm, I, I can't seem to figure that out. I don't know what that would be. And so the, the obvious thing then just becomes, well, I'll let that go. Whereas I feel like what you're saying is I feel that we can, we can learn and be able to, to grapple and come to some clu- conclusivity to some of those things with the skills that you teach. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe let me share this illustration. We unpacked the crisis side of of the term faith crisis. So let's unpack the faith side. Oftentimes, uh, and many times, I think that's why it's been named this way, people do go at it with the tools of faith. So uh, they're, they're trying to figure out testimony, prayer, uh, my church standing, my worthiness, uh, that's, those are the tools they take into the question. Well, what if you took in history tools? So here's an example. Uh, the, the accounts of the first vision uh, it, it, it are, are challenging for many people. But one of the thoughts I have is that they're challenging for people because most people only encounter history in school. And in school, history is presented with a textbook. All of the answers are there. There's one voice. You memorize it. You spit them back on the test. You get an A, and then you don't care about it. Then, somewhere in their life, they encounter uh, the, uh, the four accounts of survived from Joseph Smith of, about the first vision. And that is the first time they ever heard that there were multiple accounts of a historical event. Well. If we approach it as a, as a history crisis, well, we'll keep the crisis term, every event from history, if we're lucky, has multiple accounts. Mm-hmm. The problem events, the history crisis occurs when there isn't an account, uh, and then we don't know uh, what happened. We get excited when there are multiple accounts. Uh, we get excited when accounts offer more information. We get excited when a person uh, talks about their experience from multiple vantage points. Uh, you know, if a new letter were to survive or, or, or were to appear, a letter by Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, uh, a year and a half after the Gettysburg Address, right before his assassination, if, he, if there were a letter where he offered reflections on what he was doing at the Gettysburg Address, we would love that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make us question, did Lincoln really give the Gettysburg Address? We would be thrilled that we got additional insight later in his life, different setting, different vantage point about what he thought was happening or what he thought the Gettysburg Address meant. And so then uh, if you approach it with a, with a history tool set, it doesn't even become a crisis anymore. Now it becomes, this is the way history works. Uh, this is what we're looking for. If another account were to surface next week, that would be wonderful. Uh, we would publish it. We would be excited about it. We also would, wouldn't get discouraged because there are many, many accounts that didn't occur. You know, one of my favorites uh, is a letter we have from W.W. W. Phelps to his wife. And he says, this morning, Joseph gave a sermon and he asked me to choose the topic. And I'm paraphrasing this. W.W. Mm-hmm. Phelps is all excited. He says, he asked me to choose the topic. And I asked him to speak about the first vision. And he spoke for three hours and I'll tell you more when I get a chance. <laughs> well, that letter, if there ever was one, didn't survive. And maybe he just told his wife in person. So 
there's at least a sermon, a three-hour sermon, with how many people? A dozen people, two dozen, maybe a hundred people? If only they had written their account. You know, I've often wondered, if we could get Joseph to talk about the first vision for three hours, maybe people would go back to three-hour church. Uh, <laughs> but at least for one week. Sure. Uh, I'd do it so, for one week. I would do it for one week. But uh, but so when you kind of when you start to see history as working as that that way, then it's not really a crisis. It's more of a, this is how it works. This is this is uh, what I'm what I'm looking for. And so sometimes I think the the faith set of tools are 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 not the right tools to take into uh, the feeling that that's a, a crisis. And maybe it's more of a of a history tool set that that would be helpful to make sense of our history. I want to take another break real quick, and when we come back, uh, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I also want to go just a little bit deeper on, as we've been sort of uh, defining faith and crises and faith crises and studying history and all these things as we talk about the real versus the rumor uh, with Keith Erickson. We'll come back and we'll do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankham from the Leading Saints podcast. If you'll allow me to slide into the back row of the culture hall and let you know of an upcoming virtual conference that you gotta check out. In an effort to bring more thoughtful dialogue to the topic of mental health in the Latter-day Saint context, the team over at Leading Saints has put together the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. We have interviewed 20-plus individuals with expertise or real-life experience related to so many mental health topics, including anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, and even scrupulosity, which is religious obsessive compulsive disorder. We will discuss all these topics as they relate to the Latter-day Saint faith experience and how we can all come together to better minister to those who struggle with mental health. It's free to attend virtually, and you gotta join us. For more details on what topics will be covered and to register for free, text the word LEAD to 474747 or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747, or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you like this episode, encourage you to, wherever you're getting this episode, leave a review and say, hey, I really like that Keith Erickson fellow. He's, he's a smart guy, and what he said is really helpful, or other episodes that you've liked to the Cultural Hall. A review helps us let other people know that uh, what you are listening to is great. Think of it like an Amazon review, but for this product. When people read it, they say, that's worth my time. They invest with us. And then we have more people listening, and we really appreciate that. So wherever you're at, take a second to review. If you've already done it, well, then boss somebody else to do it. We'd like to hear from them as well. Keith, uh, there was a time in uh, in our church history where anything that didn't support sort of the the storyline going back to um, what you've said, you know, like with the seagull example or, or anything, um, where if you didn't, if you weren't saying what the storyline was, it was defined as anti. And I think that set a people, a lot of people up for this, as we've sort of talked about it, faith crises. And because of the internet, among other reasons, we have sort of um, been ushered, whether willingly or <laughs> compelled, into having to grapple with a lot of these things. That idea, the black and white of anti or, or anti Mormon or, or you know pro Mormon thinking or study and scholarship, to where we're at now, what can we take away from what we've learned in the last twenty five thirty years, and what are we 
not doing right yet or need to do more of? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah. And um, my either or uh, reflex is already kicking in uh, as you frame it. Uh, and I and I may complicate a little bit of that storyline because okay. I think there is a sense. Uh, the modern story is in the past they didn't talk about it, and now the internet lets me. But uh, in the past, there was much more conversation about many of these issues. The challenge was not so much that the internet is new, but the I would say it's the information age is new. And so uh, in earlier times, they would talk about something in a, a, a church periodical, you know, and it might be the Relief Society magazine, or it might be the Improvement Era. But the problem was, if you didn't subscribe that year, you didn't get the issue. Or if you didn't read that one issue, uh, you know, you missed it. And then it didn't ever come back again. It didn't, it didn't re resurface somewhere. And so... So it's oversimplified to say people never talked about it. Mm -hmm. It's better to say that they got talked about it in kind of small circles. And those small circles were mostly uh, isolated from each other. So one of the things that we do feel in the information age now is many, many, many past conversations, all kind of consolidated and, and, and at our, our fingertips. But... So in many ways, it's like uh, we're thrown in the middle of hundreds of conversations that have been ongoing all at once, whereas people used to encounter them as here's a conversation that I'm engaged in. Uh, you know, maybe they were debating evolution, you know, and, and like, you know, we could go 1920s and there were a series of op-eds and articles, uh, including among written by members of the 12 about evolution, the church's position. But, but to kind of follow that thread through a, a talk at BYU and then an article in a church magazine. And then that was really hard to put the pieces together, but now we can put them together uh, more effectively. I don't know if I really totally answered that, yeah, yeah, but I wanted to kind of just point out that in many ways, what maybe this is the way to encapsulate it. The challenge we have, well, I, well, let me give a parable version. Okay. Um, the old parable, I think before the information age, the story is, uh, is the guy who's searching for a pearl and he's traveling all over and he finally finds it because it's so hard to find. Today in the information age, I think we're a different parable. We're the fisherman who pulls up his net and there's all kinds of stuff in it and you got to throw stuff back and keep some stuff. And, and so that's a different skill. One skill is to search the whole world to find the one thing. Now, for, for the information age, we, we've got all kinds of things uh, in our net, and, and we need the skills to say, nope, not this one, uh, yes, this one, uh, and then we need to do that, you know, uh, times infinity, because we're just swimming uh, in information. I, I really appreciate this. This conversation has not gone at all like how I thought it would, um, <laughs> but all that to say, I feel like this is... Uh, it has a lot more uh, deepness and substance. Not to say that I thought we were going to have a light and trivial conversation, but knowing that that what this book is about is sure. You touch on the very interesting sort of, um, you know, hey, did you know kind of things within the church, and you're able to talk about that. But that we're really being able to talk about how we can 
you know, com- combine sort of our study and our our knowledge and our our um, examining skills and all of these things to to really be able to 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 become what better better people better thinkers um, scholars in our own right um, firm in in the in the testimony that we have and know and knowing why why and how and and for what it, it it's a, a deeper richness that I don't know that I expected from the conversation. Well, I think being a better thinker is part of being a better disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, he asks us to serve him with all of our mind and our might, our heart, our strength. Uh, You know, my elders quorum is pretty good at getting my strength involved. Mm -hmm. I go rake leaves and I move people's stuff. But I think there's so much more uh, that the Lord is asking of us and uh, that we can engage uh, in serving him. Yeah. I love it. And to know uh, more about kind of what the Church History Library does, I was fascinated by that as well. Uh, Keith, there is three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I will ask those questions of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling, sir? And if so, what is it? I do. I am the mission leader the, in my ward. The ward mission leader. How has that been during the pandemic? You know, uh, I only got the call kind of midway through, so it's only been a couple of months, and um, mostly it's been like Zoom meetings and stuff. <laughs> if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, the the best calling I, I ever had, which I never had, was uh, playing the piano in primary. Mm. Uh, we had a person who did that, but... Uh, they never came. So I was like the standby person. And since they never came, I always got to go in. <laughs> and let me just say, playing the piano with kids is the coolest. Uh, that was the most fun ever. And I would do that uh, forever. We asked that question of uh, a lot of folks. And I think that probably most popular, it's either playing the piano for the primary kids or leading the music for the primary kids. I would say probably two in every 10 responses is that. We get some fun I responses. I know I was giving the, the popular response, yeah. but it's fun. Uh, the final question that we ask, and ask that you interpret this however you would like, um, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith, I think, something that's been really most meaningful to me is, is understanding an idea of uh, living faith. Uh, Part of it came years ago when I was studying that document, The Living Christ, uh, and and thought about uh, a lot about what it meant that he was alive and living. Um, But but one of the places I found it again then was in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the living Christ tells Joseph that the church is the only true and living church. And I think we do well in our testimonies and lessons and things, talking about the church being true. Uh, and often that sets up a kind of either or, it's true or false. Mm-hmm. But but Jesus doesn't talk about it as an either or, true or. He talks about it as true and, and true and living. And 
And I think it's living in a lot of ways. I think there are living people like you and me, and we're growing and changing. We're, we're, we are the church. Uh, I think it's living in the, in the institutional sense of, of changes uh, and that, you know, it doesn't have the same structure, uh, the, the kind of ongoing restoration sense. And then ultimately, I think it's living kind of back where I started in that the living Christ uh, directs it and, and leads it. it. It's a living church because it's his church and he is living. And so when I kind of think about my faith in that context, I want to think about a living faith that is that's growing, that is changing, that's uh, that's evolving, that's being strengthened. Faith isn't the 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 thing I felt at EFY when I was a kid or as a missionary. Faith is a, is a long term thing, uh, and it's for the for the long. I mean, I really like Alma in chapter thirty two. He talks about long term kind of faith stuff. You're looking forward with an eye of faith. And there's a whole bunch of work, patience and long suffering and digging. And you're not going to eat fruit of this tree for a long time. But the tree is living, the fruit is living, and, and your faith is living and, and going, long, long, long going. So maybe that was too long of an answer. No, nope. it's a long living sense of faith, I think. I appreciate it. Uh, the name of the book is Real Versus Rumor, How to Dispel Latter-day Myths. We've been visiting with Keith Erickson. Uh, don't forget, you can go to theculturalhall.com. Uh, if you click on that Deseret Book link right there on the front page, uh, that'll take you to a shop where you can save 15% on Keith's book because we interviewed him here in the Cultural Hall. Or when you go to check out, make sure that you use the promo code Richie. That's my name, R-I-C-H-I-E. It'll save you 15%. And then when you read that book, make sure you review it and say, Keith, you're amazing. It was even greater than I thought it would be. Uh, it's Real versus Rumor, Keith Erickson. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Ken Williams, and BigMikesProducts.com will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we read.